Oh, uh, you'll see. We're about to navigate some really difficult subjects here in the heart of First Corinthians, and it has this way of making you feel fairly inadequate as a pastor. And so I was thinking this week about how adequate our God is and how precious his word is. And so what a treat it is that we can press uh, so deeply into that and trust it together this morning. If you are able to stand, please stand to honor the reading of God's word. First Corinthians chapter 6, again, focusing on 9 through 11, but I'm going to read 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, as is the case every week, we need a miracle to occur among us as we gather under your scriptures. Especially this morning, Lord, by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us not only understand this text, but approach it with humility. Lord, expecting that you have something to teach us this morning for our good and for your glory and for the sake of loving our city well. We love you so much. We are so thankful for this text, despite the difficult subjects contained therein. We love you and we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Do you know why we're here this morning? We're here with respect to the hope in the resurrection of the dead. That's why we're here. In case that language sounds familiar, it's because I'm borrowing it from the Apostle Paul, language that he employed on two occasions in the book of Acts while he was being interrogated by a council of religious opponents and then by the governor of Judea. And now here we are, returning to our series in 1 Corinthians, and in doing so, beginning a journey in which we will successively consider some of the most combustible issues of our day. Sexuality, marriage, remarriage, singleness, gender, idolatry, 
drunkenness, etc. Issues on account of which Christians are regularly being interrogated by the various councils of our contemporary age, sometimes justifiably so, when we fail to communicate truth with thoughtfulness and compassion, sometimes unjustifiably simply on account of spiritual opposition. <coughs> so as I've been thinking and praying about this series of messages, I had a lot, long time to think about it, two months to be exact. The Lord has been reminding me again and again, remember why you're here. You're here, not just me, all of us. Because of the cornerstone message Paul proclaims and defends throughout this letter to the Corinthian church, we preach Christ crucified. See 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23. And you are here because Jesus Christ wasn't just crucified. He was raised. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Which means that everything we're going to be talking about the next few weeks is related to and relevant because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen? And that helps us put things in the right order. If the resurrection really happened, which is what we believe here at City Church, to be clear, and by extension the scriptures are trustworthy and true, we don't have time to get into this right now, but I would argue that the resurrection of Jesus and the authority of scripture are very much bound together, if the resurrection really happened, then we have very good reasons to trust both the content and the goodness of the content that we're about to discuss. Which is so important because it's becoming very popular to move in the opposite direction. You know, I don't like these Christian ethics. They're backwards. They infringe upon my personal freedoms. So I'm going to be out on this whole Christianity thing because there's nothing good about it. Or perhaps I'll invent a pseudo-Christianity that's more in step with our moment. But City Church, Jesus Christ either has or has not been raised, a historical event that obviously cannot be contingent upon our contemporary emotions concerning Christian ethics, or anything else for that matter. And if Christ has been raised, then we can embrace everything we're going to be discussing these next few weeks with thanksgiving and with great joy, as well as fear and trembling, trusting in the very wise providence of our Heavenly Father. I also want you to know this, and this is, this is really important. I'm standing here because I love you. Seriously. And even if we disagree on some of these matters, I want you to know that I'm still going to love you the same amount. To paraphrase Francis Schaeffer, if you walk out of here today thinking, I just really disagree with what he said this morning, my prayer is that you will also be thinking, yet I can tell that he really cares about me and loves me. Speaking of the cross and the resurrection, let's get started with the main thing we're considering today, and it's this. When we make our way to the foot of said cross, trusting in Christ Jesus, God transforms us internally in a manner that's reflected externally in the way that we live, which confirms our inheritance in the kingdom of God. So even though today we're talking about some difficult topics, you just 
you just might leave here, believe it or not, encouraged, challenged, but also really encouraged. I think it could really happen. So first a warning and then a reminder. The warning, the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. And then we'll consider the reminder. And such were some of you. Let's start with the warning. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. In verse 9, we find the third part of a cadence that begins earlier in chapter 6, verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? Verse 3, do you not know that we are to judge angels? And then verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? When we put these three do you not knows together, it becomes very clear that there are two possible destinies for human beings. Saints, as in holy, set-apart people, united to Christ on account of repentance and belief, or faith in Christ, will inherit the eternal kingdom of God. And not only will they inherit it, when Jesus returns, they will have some kind of accompanying role with Jesus in judging the living and the dead, including fallen angels, as we discussed back in November. But the unrighteous, those without faith in Christ, who persist in their sin by essentially putting their faith in themselves and sitting in the God seat, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. That is, they will not live eternally in King Jesus' place, the new heaven and earth, among the king's people, overseen by the king's power. That's the definition of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven that we use in our Sermon on the Mount series that comes from Patrick Schreiner. Why the juxtaposition of these two destinies? Because the Apostle Paul was aghast that Corinthian believers were bringing their eternal disputes in front of Gentile, non-believing local magistrates. Part of the problem is that the Corinthian believers were dealing with an identity crisis. They were forgetting that as saints who were going to be future angel judges. Surely God had given them the resources to judge, for example, a property dispute among themselves without going to the courts. But also, they were bringing their disputes to authorities who didn't share their worldview or their values. Paul clearly thought that this was irrational, not to mention unwise. And verse 9 gives us a hint that the Corinthian believers experienced some dissonance as well, and they tried to deal with it by minimizing the value differences that separated believers and unbelievers. Corinth was cosmopolitan. It was fairly pagan. It was a breeding ground for ethical standards that contradicted God's standards. So it's not hard, think about this, it's not hard to imagine Corinthian believers saying to one another, you know, everyone's doing these sorts of things. Let's not make a big deal about them. You know, we kind of, we got to get with the times. To which Paul responded, you can see this in the second part of verse 9, and then in the verse 10, Corinthians, do not be deceived. 
neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. These unrighteous unbelievers overseeing your disputes have very different answers to all of life's big questions related to our identity, the origin of creation, the nature and existence of God, the fate of the world, etc. We could go on. And their lifestyles, which are connected to their answers to those big questions, which is the case for everybody, for me, for you, all of us, their lifestyles demonstrate an obstinate posture toward God that will prevent them from inheriting the kingdom of God. Church, please, please notice this is so important, perhaps a little bit surprising in light of this list. The condition most directly related to not inheriting the kingdom of God is unrighteousness. See verse 9 and recall the use of the same terminology back in verse 1 as the opposite of the term saints. Unrighteousness is the problem. Unrighteousness meaning a state of moral imperfection before a holy God catalyzed by unbelief in God and the behaviors that reflect that unbelief, all of which results in guilt or guiltiness in the eyes of God. I have it on really good authority that pastors get all sorts of these sudden Intense, strange, and sometimes very personal questions, often at very random moments. So, for example, a pastor might hear something like, I recently had a one-night stand. Does this mean I'm going to hell? Or even better, I recently had a one-night stand. Do you think I'm going to hell? And this is why pastors get nervous about dinner parties. They can turn in a moment, let me tell you. First, there is a very real sense in which it doesn't matter what I think. God is the arbiter of heaven and hell, not pastors, which is why I like to consult God's word on matters such as these instead of presenting you with my personal hunch as if I'm participating in an elementary school science fair. No disrespect to those fairs, I participated in them and, and really enjoyed them. And you can and should do the same. You can look this stuff up. You can investigate it. Second, not having one night stands doesn't get you into heaven. And that's because third, no one is righteous. Not even one. Romans 3.10. Maybe you didn't have a one-night stand. But rebellion against God, for the sake of being gods ourselves, is a universal human experience that results in every last one of us snubbing God's standard in some way. It's just a matter of how. So maybe it's not something on the list in verses 9 and 10. But what about lists like the one in 2 Timothy chapter 3, 
But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Anybody see themselves in any of that? And I was thinking this week that I've never heard someone ask, I've been disobedient to my parents. Do you think I'm going to hell? So it's not so much the one-night stand that keeps you out of God's kingdom. It's the hard-hearted rebelliousness that does it. A posture toward God in which we consider ourselves to be wiser and more trustworthy than God, thereby sitting in judgment over him. A posture in which we then reimagine the world as a grab bag of things to take and worship and even exploit instead of steward. A posture in which we engineer our own sets of rules for flourishing instead of abiding by God's wisdom. All of which fractures our relationship with God and makes us unrighteous, leaving us outside of God's kingdom looking in. And actually, if you pay close attention to the list in verses 9 and 10, you can see that these behaviors are more than just scattered actions here and there. Do you see this? These behaviors, they're ongoing, they're intense, essentially becoming the, the identity of those who are engaged in them. The sexually immoral, idolaters, adulterers, thieves, the greedy, which is the heart of the problem. These are not God's people. Their identity is rooted in Christ. They are their own people. Their identity is tethered to sex, to alcohol, to money, etc. And so they're outside of God's kingdom. And by the way, when our identity is tethered to anything other than God, we always distort the thing it's tethered to, misusing it, to suit our own self-interested desires rather than using it in accordance with God's good purposes. Take the first category on the list, the sexually immoral. God designed sex to support the one fleshness of marriage that is really clear in the passage that immediately follows the one we're in now, which we're going to discuss next week. And according to Jesus, I'm looking at Matthew 19 and Mark 10, a one-flesh marriage is when, quote, a man leaves his father and mother and holds fast to his wife, which is actually a direct quote from the account in Genesis chapter 2 of God's creation of Adam and Eve. And now consider that the character of marriage is other-oriented sacrifice between a man and a woman that depicts the relationship between Christ and his church Ephesians chapter 5. Marriage demonstrates, therefore, we might say, the shape of the gospel. Put all of this together, and we see that physical intimacy is actually a means. Think about how countercultural this is. It's actually a means for spouses to serve and to care for each other as they live out the mysterious marital dance that points to the relationship between Christ 
and his church. Which means that any other forms of sex are therefore types of sexual immorality, language Jesus himself uses, for example, in Matthew chapter 15, committed by the sexually immoral person or people. And here's what various kinds of sexual immorality have in common. They're, they're more about taking than giving. That distortion is obvious in forms like pornography. You can really see it there in which sex becomes nothing more than a means of self-gratification that often exploits others. And this distortion is its less obvious, but it's still true. And I say this with a spirit of pastoral love and, and not judgmentalism, knowing full well that this is a very sensitive subject for many of us. It's still true in something like premarital cohabitation. You know, it might sound wise to say, let's make sure we're, you know, we're physically compatible before we get married. It, get married, it sounds really practical, but, but without a covenantal marital commitment, physical intimacy really does start to become a take. You'll stay with your partner as long as you feel like they're meeting your needs. Or how about the greedy? You know, continuing with this list, God gives different people different amounts of money and things. No particular amount is automatically more or less holy than another. But God has designed us to steward whatever he's given us in order to be a blessing to other people, to love our neighbors. Greed distorts all of that. We become takers, amassing resources for our own benefit and for our own power. How about drunkards? God has given us such good things to eat and drink that nourish our bodies and give us gladness on this side of heaven, praise God. But abusing food and drink to amuse ourselves or to, to numb pain or anything like that, such as in the case of excessive drinking, it distorts God's purposes for those things and even, especially in the case of alcohol, interferes with our ability to abide in Christ and be guided by the Holy Spirit. For the sake of time, I will let you work through the rest of this list. When these behaviors essentially represent our true identities, when they become basically who we are, it's the produce of our unrepentant, prideful rebelliousness, which means we have no portion in God's kingdom now or in the future. We might profess to be Christians. We might go to church. But it turns out that our lives, they tell the real story. Because our lives demonstrate who or what we really believe and trust and love. Which means it's, it's really worth asking ourselves this week as we make our way into this new year. City Church, what story is our life telling? What story is our life telling? What might strangers say, or aliens, they were in the news a lot this past year, if they dipped into our lives for a few days, how would they categorize the order of our loves? Which pyramid would they build if they had to sketch it on a sheet of paper? And church, you know, God's wisdom 
is so much better than our wisdom concerning sex and money and power and food and drink and everything else. We never improve his plans. We distort them, all of which causes us harm. The biblical vision for sex and money and all these things, I got to tell you, is far more beautiful and meaningful and robust than any other vision for those things, no matter how much it's mocked or assailed. Which is why I'm standing up here. Because I love you. And because I care about your well-being. I am completely disinterested in finger-wagging or judgmentalism which has no place, by the way, at City Church. But I am interested in loving you. Earlier, though, I said that all of this is related to and relevant because of <coughs> the cross, which will become more clear as we make our way to the reminder that, thankfully, contains far more positive news. So here's a reminder. And such were some of you. Go back to verse 9 and read through verse 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God, finger-wagging face plants with some real authority when we take that first part of verse 11 seriously. Corinthian believers, some of you were previously caught in up in all of this stuff too. You, you were in the same boat. And the reason that he says some of you isn't because the others were morally perfect. They were simply dealing with a different set of problems. Maybe they were disobedient to their parents or ungrateful or, or swollen with conceit. And the reason he says were is that then God broke into their lives. And they were washed. Being in my late 30s, that passage really ministers to me because I am, in fact, washed. Professional athletes are retiring by my age, sometimes younger talking about themselves at press conferences as if they have one foot in a nursing home and the other foot on a banana peel. When I go to the doctor because something hurts, now they just look at me empathetically and they tell me that I'm welcome to come back anytime if I want even more empathetic looks. Paul is talking about a different kind of wash, though, isn't he? And here I'm reminded of Psalm 51, the opening two verses. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. When we are washed, we are cleansed of our sin, and that's exactly what God has done in Christ. For those who cry out to the Lord for mercy on account of their sin, 
and their blood guiltiness, which is language that occurs later in the psalm. The psalmist, King David, was probably referring to the blood on his hands on account of killing Uriah, if you're familiar with that account. But in truth, we all have blood on our hands, on account of the cross, which was necessary on account of our sin. And those whom God washes, he also sanctifies, making us his holy, set-apart possession. And those whom God sanctifies, he also justifies, declaring unrighteous people righteous on account of Christ's righteousness, clearing us of our guilt. The blood shed on account of our sin now applied, if you can believe it, to our account. The Father ordained all of this on account of his compassionate, loving kindness. The Son, Jesus Christ, accomplished it for us in the Holy Spirit. As you can see here at the ver end of verse 11, it supernaturally applies it to us as he regenerates the unrighteous. It's quite the reminder, isn't it, for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Certainly the reminder was very practical. Paul was emphasizing the difference between the Corinthian believers and pagan unbelievers, in, in part because of the, the social implications for lawsuits and marriage and singleness and eating meat sacrificed to idols, which we'll get to in chapter 8, and so on and so forth. Those who are in Christ live differently. We are strange in the eyes of the world, although we're still sent by Jesus into the world, and we'll get to that in chapter 9. So the reminder was practical and the reminder was protective. Paul reminded the Corinthian believers of their new status in Christ to help them resist the temptation to assimilate pagan practices. Why? I mean, is it, is it because as Christians, you know, we really need to look the part out there? Is it, is it because, you know, we need to check the boxes and do Christian things? No. It's because in Christ, we are free. We're no longer in bondage to our old sinful ways because we were washed and sanctified and justified. Sinful ways which, by the way, distort and corrupt no matter how alluring they might seem to be or even how good they might feel for a season. So if the Son sets you free, these are Jesus' own words, you will be free indeed, John chapter 8, verse 36. Sin doesn't have to control your life anymore. Amen. Paul longed for the Corinthian believers to enjoy that freedom. And I long for all of you to enjoy that same freedom. And perhaps that helps some of you understand the nature of pastoral ministry. This is the cheesiest thing I believe I have ever said from the pulpit in all of my years. But I feel compelled to say it. Pastors are freedom fighters. That's who we are. We are fighting with you for your freedom and for your joy in Christ because we love you. And I thought about wearing a dry fit shirt with FF for freedom fighters underneath here, and I was just going to, you know, and 
My given name is Forrest, my last name is Flannington, so that's also FF, and so the, the dry fit shirt would have had a lot of utility beyond this Sunday morning as well. Those are things I think about. Pastors are freedom fighters. And even better, this is way better, the Lord himself is fighting for us. Did you know that? Which is why he's given us the Holy Spirit to live in us and empower us. And why he's given us his word. And why he's given us the opportunity to commune with him in prayer. And given us the sacraments. And why he's given us built-in spiritual community. That is the church of Jesus Christ. All so that we might live in a way that demonstrates and confirms our status as sanctified people. For the glory of God and the good of our neighbors, and for the sake of our joy. Chipper, last night, I went out with my friends, and I had way too much to drink. Have I forfeited my inheritance in the kingdom of God? Chipper, this past week, I made some business decisions that were in my best interest financially, but not so much in the interests of my clients. Have I forfeited my inheritance in the kingdom of God? Once again, I'm not an arbiter of who is in or out of God's kingdom. I'm just a freedom fighter. However, another part of Psalm 51 does come to mind, specifically verse 17. I would love to read it to you if that would be okay. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is really important. The mark of someone who is in Christ Jesus and part of God's kingdom is not perfection. It's genuine brokenness and contriteness in the wake of their sin. Contriteness and repentance is actually a work of the Holy Spirit who lives in Christ's followers and guides us and convicts us when necessary. Repentance followed by fresh belief and trust in the Lord and in gospel promises. And then this pattern, repentance repentance and belief, uh, other authors describe this as sort of the two pedals of a bicycle in the Christian walk. That is a pattern that God uses over time to grow us spiritually. I saw this in a piece this past week from Russell Moore. I think this was in Christianity Today. He says that, that this is very timely. The presence of God with us in Christ and therefore our, our belonging in the kingdom of God. It's not a reward for good performance. It's the way in which we are transformed. And you know, if King David, again, he's the author of Psalm 51, if he could be forgiven for abusing his power for the sake of sexual gratification and deception and murder, surely the Lord will forgive you too. Surely he will. I'll be honest, this is a scary passage for those who are persisting in the kinds of sins spelled out for us in this passage those who are essentially 
defined by these things and aren't all that concerned about the kingdom of God. If you keep persisting, obstinately consumed with yourself, you're in serious spiritual danger. But the broken and the contrite, those of you, you know, this morning, with heads bowed low, with tears in your eyes, the broken and contrite, despite their imperfection, are so near to God. And God is near to you. And like the most wonderful doctor you can imagine, he longs to attend to your needs. And not just to give you some empathetic look, but to really heal you. He's never too busy. You cannot badger him or bother him. He doesn't play golf on Fridays and make you schedule an appointment on Mondays. He's always available, and he longs to minister to you. And let me end with a, a bit of an evangelistic appeal. People are so hungry for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They're so hungry for the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think more than most people would imagine, including the kinds of people you see on these lists. I'll leave you with two little vignettes here. Number one, I was just listening to one of my uh, favorite authors. She was, she, um, there's a number of things, but she goes to a church up in Massachusetts, and recently they left some furniture from their office that they didn't need anymore. They put it out on the curb, and then someone came by and picked it up and kind of ducked their head and say, hey, is this, is this furniture, you know, can I take it? Is that okay? And like, yep, that's why I put it on the curb. And then she just happened to say, you know, we would love it if you would come to church on Sunday morning. And they were like, I would love that. And then they showed up on Sunday morning. And then I was listening to another author the other day who was <coughs> talking about an experience that one of his friends had when uh, Queen Elizabeth passed away. You know, she they have it so you can go and pay your respects. And y when you did this, you had to get in like a, a long line, you know, like eight, nine, 10, 12 hours, very long time if you want to do this. And so a friend of his was in this line and he got to talking with the stranger because then you think about it, now you have like 12 hours with the stranger in line. And then this friend kind of asked the stranger, you know, what, why do you think we're here? Why are we doing this? Why are we standing in this line? And then they got to talking about that. And like, well, it kind of just sort of, it pulls us beyond ourselves, right? There's something kind of transcendent about this. And then they started talking about transcendent things. And the friend said, have you ever thought about, you know, reading the Gospels before? And he's like, no, I, I haven't read the Gospels. And so they exchanged emails, and this guy read the Gospels. And a few months later, he became a follower of Jesus. People are way more hungry than you think. And I also want you to know that if you identify with anything in any of these lists, you've just been talking about. God has not given up on you. And he beckons you to come to him. His grace is more than sufficient for your sin. And it would give me the most joy to hear about people here in the life of our church coming unto Christ and trusting in him. We will have to chat with you more about that. I hope that we can baptize people out on that street like we do here at City Church in the coming months because today the Lord Jesus Christ finally got a hold of your heart and healed you. Amen.